think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 129 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 130th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Aitzen Rainbow. And we have with us today a very special guest, uh, Frédéric Bouchard from the University of Montreal. Hi. So those of you who are in the know uh, on federal science policy will, of course, immediately know who, who Dr. Bouchard is. But uh, I will let Etienne give the, the lengthier introduction to why he's here today and why we are talking to him. So by, by way of background, um, science policy has always, I mean, as someone who's recently worked in the science policy space, has been an active conversation over the last however many years, what are we at, eight years of the liberal government. Uh, kind of the first landmark report that everyone thinks of when they think science policy in this government is, of course, the Naylor Report or the Fundamental Science Review. Um, but that is over five years old now, give or take a little bit. 2017. Uh, yeah, 2017. Uh, so about a year ago, the government commissioned a new report um, of which Dr. Bouchard was the chair of the panel, along with, I think, seven other people, if I'm remembering offhand, or six other people. Yeah, six, six other people. Uh, six other people, seven total. Uh, called the report of the advisory panel on federal research support system, uh, which is, I think, now lovingly known as the Bouchard report, uh, alongside the Naylor report, the shorthand for these reports. Um, fairly substantial report, 21 recommendations in all. And our goal today is, I think, to kind of go into some of the recommendations, go into a little bit of the process behind it, how you got involved with it, what that process was like as well as uh, I think where my uh, where I can be most helpful is a little bit in the political context around the port, particularly as it was getting off the ground, as I had a little bit of a front row seat to it, uh, given I was working in the university sector, government relations at the time, and, and am no longer. So it's, uh, it's an issue and a set of topics near and dear to my heart, and one I have a lot of, a lot of thoughts <laughs> to share on. <laughs> Well, maybe maybe I'll be the one asking you questions then, because yeah. you may you may know more about the uh, what happened before the report than than I do. <laughs> that we can go back and forth. I'm sure we have a lot to learn from each other on this. So, Tan, is there anything else you wanted to add on sort of the, the broad context of science policy? So, I guess my my only disclaimer uh, for listeners is science policy, particularly in where it intersects with universities. There are a lot of acronyms. We will try our absolute <laughs> best. And, and Laurent, feel, feel free to play referee here. Okay. Our absolute best to use as few acronyms as possible, or at least to spell them out the first time. Uh, I will set as a baseline the Herd, granting Herd, agencies. Herd, <laughs> not, not even those. <laughs> NSERC, SHRC, uh, CIHR, and CFI being the three plus one granting councils uh, that the federal government operates mm -hmm. that gives uh, funding to universities slash researchers in order to pursue uh, their research. That is kind of the single fact you need to start knowing this conversation is the existence of these granting agencies or granting councils, even though CIHR is not a council, yada, yada, yada. Um, but then from there, there's a number of other acronyms in terms of the program, which we'll try to, uh, get through in reasonable fashion so that any, any given listener can, can keep up. Yes. You're is really there anything selling you want... this oh. well to the listeners? <laughs> <laughs> I would be really glad. I, I'm glad I'm here. And yeah, yeah, we've got a, a bunch of acronyms and we'll make sure to uh, 
<laughs> to give them all of them. Yeah, I'm looking over at my notes right now, and I, I, I see a lot of them. Uh, some of them three-letter acronyms, some of them four-letter acronyms. Like, we're, we're in for a good time here. That's uh, This is how we have fun in Ottawa, is we, we come up with acronyms. Um, so I, I guess the first question is, you know, Etienne, like, feel free to jump in if you want to talk a little bit about the sort of, like, the political machinations around why um, this uh, this uh, advisory panel was sort of brought into being from your perspective. Uh, but I guess I'll, I'll toss it over to Dr. Bouchard at this point to say, you know, what was the sort of genesis of this? You know, you were you were happily working away at the University of Montreal, research, teaching, I imagine a little bit of both, uh, some administrative duties, all the, all the good stuff that in the life of the of the professor. And then the government reaches out. So tell me, what was, what was that like and, and how did they approach you? And uh, what was kind of the, well, the pitch and what interested you? The uh, So actually, uh, these these last few years, uh, I haven't done much teaching or uh, not as much research as I, as I should. Uh, for the last six years, I've been dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences uh, at University of Montréal. And roughly, it's all the departments in um, humanities, social sciences, and natural sciences. Um, and so I've been doing this university administration for a few years and been very involved in various, I'd say, innovation files or research files or science policy files. Uh, and I'm a, basically, before being a dean, I'm a philosopher of science. So I've been interested academically on you know, how science works and what are the, uh, the roles of scientific institutions. So I've had various mandates through the years to look into how to in increase the uh, performance of scientific institutions or to accompany governance issues and so on. So when I was asked, uh, you know, whether I would uh, participate in this, you know, I was really excited as a philosopher of science. As a dean, um, I'd say it's a privilege, but also, you know, there is a big concern just in universities in general uh, as to you know what is Canada's standing uh, in research and how can it be better supported. So it was a mixture of I'd say you know uh, intellectual interest as a philosopher of science. This is kind of applied you know science studies, if you will. Uh, but as a dean, you know the urgency of the file and the urgency of the issue is is uh, very heartfelt, uh, not just for me, but anybody, you know, in higher education, uh, you know, what is, you know, are we doing all that we can to make sure that Canada has kind of the expertise that it needs? And so when, when I was asked, um, you know, I, I, obviously you say yes. Obviously, <laughs> well, first of all, when government, when government asks you to help, you need very serious reasons to say no. Just kind of, uh, just as a, a citizen, if you're asked to serve, you know, and I'm not being, you know, I don't mean this uh, to be glib or this is a sincere thing. Like in, in a weird way, you know, the default answer should be yes. And then it's just question, is it feasible? Can you really best serve? Uh, the detailed mechanics of the report were not, trivial. Uh, at the onset, you know, I was told that we had a very short uh, time frame. And so I'm kind sorry. of very... <laughs> I was one of the people being like, shorter, the better. We need to hit budget yeah. 2023. Uh, we can, but we can get this uh, to this later. I actually think that this is how future reports, not just in science policy, but I think this will be the new norm. And I think it's a good thing. Uh, but uh, before starting, you know, when they say, well, 
you know, you'll start early fall. Uh, hopefully, you know, this would be done by late December, you know, like, oh, geez, like how, how I'm going to do this. So the first phone call was to my rector, my university president, because this would have an impact on my day job. But it, you just need to make sure that can we have, can we consult broadly enough? Do we have time to get the data? Do we have time to, uh, consult with stakeholders and, uh, provide our analysis. So the, the time frame I think was the biggest parameter of our work uh, to consider before accepting this. And uh, we started, so I, basically it probably should have started earlier. Uh, and here Etienne probably has a better vantage point than I do. Uh, but to, for all the nomination to be finalized, uh, we started officially in October uh, 2022. And, uh, and then we just, uh, October 6th was the official launch of the panel. And, uh, then from October to December, um, we had mostly zoom sessions, uh, but in-person sessions as well, uh, with people across Canada and also universe, uh, international, uh, partners. I'll come back to that later. Uh, there was an online que consultation questionnaire, and we received some um, some uh, briefs. Then December 2022 basically is when we kind of digested all of this and we had the panel discussions. Uh, and then uh, the final advice to both Ministre Champagne and Ministre Duclos was late January 2023. So that, that was roughly uh, the time frame. Uh, and, uh, and we can get back to this because this is something uh, I think this is of interest. Basically, our panel was, I want to say, uh, preordained. I mean, it was announced in the Naylor report that a follow-up should be conducted uh, because they had made some recommendations on governance, not not that much. It was mostly on the uh, the financial support and the, the constraints of the current system. But they were saying there should be a follow-up on the Naylor report. And uh, in the mandate letters of both Ministre Champagne and Ministre Duclos, so both ICED and Health, uh, because CIHR, one of the acronyms that was used earlier, uh, is under the health portfolio, while the others are under ICED. Um, in their mandate letters, you know, they had to conduct a, you know, it was announced that there were a, a review would be conducted. So uh, there was no surprise that our panel would, would, uh, would happen, just a question of timing and what would be the, you know, the scope of it. Yeah. So what you touched on there, there's a few interesting points that I, I would kind of lead off of. Um, like in the advance of the panel being created, I heard kind of two rationale for it. Um, one was five years post Naylor, finance wants an accounting of um, money spent in Naylor and wants to know that if they're going to reinvest as you know, universities have been arguing for for more investments in fundamental research and other and other types of research. That if finance is going to be prepared to invest, they want to make sure that the governance structure of the tri councils or the granting agencies are kind of up to snuff. That things are running well. Um, or there was, and this was before CARPA was taken off the table. That if CARPA, Jen, you, you should jump in and explain what the acronym you just used is. There. Well, CARPA, I think we've been talking <laughs> about for a while, but the idea had been um, for the government to create a, a DARPA, a Canadian version of DARPA, except uh, not in defense industries. 
Um, and this was in the liberal platform as well as the conservative platform, incidentally. And in Minister Champagne's mandate letter, the CARPA and the Tri-Agency Review were kind of in the same line. So one of the questions that came up very quickly that year was when CARPA was taken off the, the table, I believe, in budget 2022 in the Canadian Innovation Corporation. Yeah. Is that the acronym? Yes. Um, was whether or not this, this review would go ahead um, or whether or not it had been linked to CARPA as it seemed to be in, in the language of the mandate letter. But it seems like they ultimately sided on the no, it will go ahead anyways. But the, and just to set the stage a little bit for your recommendation, the hopes of the sector, I think, to channel them broadly was that this could be a piece of housekeeping is perhaps underselling it, but a piece, a governance piece in order to have the government comfortable with, you know, larger investments in the university sector in the coming years. Um, and so a lot of hope was put on the report in terms of coming up with solutions that make the tri-council solve some of the kind of the historical problems and ensure that the government has confidence in the council uh, council so that they can invest more money going forward. Is that, do you think that's so, kind of a fair characterization? Well, of, so, uh, you know, I had, I mean, I, I I had been to Ottawa often. I had interacted with government agencies often. Um, but, you know, having worked on this, um, you know, it's uh, what I've learned is that, you know, you presented kind of your hypotheses as, you know, if we, as if we had to choose. Uh, I think all of what you said is true. You know, it sounds, everything you said, I heard from some stakeholders, right? So, uh, I think that uh, there was in the mandate letter, uh, you know, both uh, CARPA and the review. Uh, you know, Car CARPA was obviously shelved, uh, but, you know, I think where it gets more interesting and where it's tied to our report is that what was CARPA for, right? What was the intent of the proposition? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what was underlying the idea uh, is does actually find its place in our report and the the need and and I'll just put it out there and we can get back to it. Uh, but basically, is does Canada have the instruments to uh, to support mission driven research? Uh, and some of those missions will have economic uh, output in terms of innovation, but others will have you know social outputs or health outputs and so on. So. In some sense, when the CARPA proposition, and this I know just from reading, you know, the newspaper and, and seeing, you know, how the discussion unfolded a few years ago, the idea is Canada needs something more in terms of funding instruments to support mission-driven research. Some to, or much of it can have, you know, big economic impact. And, and so in this light, you know, whether... Then when we get to our panel, you know, the question remained. I mean, it, this was expressed also in the Naylor report is basically often we oppose basic research and applied research. Mm -hmm. uh, but actually, you know, what we stress in our report is I think we think a, a more helpful distinction is between investigator-driven research and mission-driven research. And investigator-driven research is where the scientists basically say, well, these are the questions that should be asked and please, you know, give us money and we'll get the answers or we'll further understanding. And mission-driven research, which is more on the DARPA model or a CARPA model or other agencies in the world, 
is basically Canada, well, the country has a big need or has a big challenge or has a big uh, goal that it wants to achieve. And uh, so we, the need is expressed in some sense either by government or uh, NGOs or whatnot. And then we ask researchers, can you answer the call, right? And this is what Canada doesn't have uh, right now. And this is, you know, among the recommendations we make, uh, you know, are among, uh, you know, do we have a mission-driven instrument? In terms of higher funding, uh, obviously, you know, universities will agree. I mean, it's basically, uh, and this is, uh, I'd say, um, a theme that comes up often in your uh, podcast, but most people are, will agree that they need more money, right? So the question is, is the need, you know, how does the need uh, justified? Uh, is it justified? And is it urgent? And this is where we get into the support our science question that you raised is that, you know, it is a fact that uh, graduate student scholarship, so how do we fund our master's and PhD students, hasn't been increased in 20 years. And this is, it's not just an ethic, it's not just a social justice or, you know, do we care, take care of uh, uh, our, you know, our bright minds is that this has material impact on the type of research and science that will be able that we will be able to conduct in Canada. So I I, I want to put the funding issue is really important. The fact that the panel could help legitimate, you know, requests for uh, higher money. I mean, I think it was obvious to everyone. Uh, reducing it to that would be you know a mistake, just because uh, we were really interested in what does Canada need. Uh, in some sense was more important than what do universities want or what do graduate students need. But part of the answer is better supporting research uh, in universities and better supporting graduate students. But those are means to an end. You know, how do we make sure that the well-being and prosperity of Canada, um, you know, is ensured for the next decades? Yeah. On yeah, on exactly that. On on the funding issue, particularly around grad students, I noted that there was kind of an explanatory paragraph in the report <laughs> that explains why the funding question or why funding was one one of the recommendations when the mandate was struck to address structure and governance. Um, because when I was preparing, uh, you know, a submission for this, I was like, how do we weave this into a <laughs> structure and governance conversation when what a large number of people wanted to do was they wanted to talk about funding. But before we go too far into the recommendations, I have one other kind of context setting piece that I want to put to you. Um, and this was one of the dynamics that I kind of felt in terms of push-pull was that within the government, there's always the desire to have um, more reins on the purse strings in order for the government to be more influential, to better align, you know, the work of the granting agencies, the money that they um, spend with the priorities of the governments of the day. Um, so there's always a desire to, you know, to bring things back. I'll give you an example. When the uh, CFI funding model was changed, um, this is going back a number of years and, and very opaque now. Uh, but when the CFI funding model was changed because it was on an endowment model and there wasn't, and finance felt it didn't have enough oversight, of that budget. And so with the granting agencies who spend, you know, roughly $3 billion a year, there was a sense 
from my side of things, that finance as a department doesn't love the idea that these uh, dollars are being spent on a model led by, you know, academics um, for priorities identified by academics. From the university side, there's a desire to keep a strong wedge between the government of the day and the way those dollars are spent, termed often the Haldane principle coming over from the UK. And so this was, I think, the push-pull that the report was set up to try and navigate was a government that wants more control over the money and wants to be able to tailor it more strategically for their issue of the day and an academic community that wants to be more independent and further from government and whether or not what the community wants imperils the odds of it getting more money in future as opposed to being you know more aligned with the objectives of the government of the day so the um, you know the the you know everybody wants more resources and more freedom at the same time so this is just human nature uh, there is there is a special um aspect to uh, scientific research, that you need high degrees of freedom uh, just because, you know, researchers are looking into questions that nobody even understands, right? So it's kind of, if you're wanting for too much control on science funding and research funding, you know, the causal link to reduce, reducing innovation is almost, you know, uh, a direct link. Uh, and so the, the the question is not so much how do you make both finance and universities happy and find a, like a political Goldilocks, but uh, when we when thinking about our recommendations, it was geared towards Canada needs two things. So it needs investigator-driven research with high degrees of freedom. So we do have future Nobel Prizes or future you know, uh, discoveries that will change, transform how we think uh, of society or vaccines. or So you need this kind of what people often refer to as basic research, but it's not purely basic, right? It, a lot of it is applied. But it's also fully legitimate for government to express kind of missions and needs. It doesn't mean that government should be deciding who gets the money. Right, so I would distinguish in the presentation you made. It's not whether you know are academics deciding or is government deciding. I think that uh, that's a bit too. I mean, that's not what we propose. Actually, is investigator-driven research, yeah, peer review by uh, experts, and it just happens that those experts are in universities <laughs> will determine you know who are uh, best equipped to answer the questions for mission-driven research. Actually, there are various models across the world on how to hand the money out. So it doesn't mean that you would have some, um, you know, some somebody at ISAID, you know, in the in, for the agencies we're talking about, that would decide. Oh, you know, uh, you know, this university is getting the money, right? That's not the model of the mission-driven research. Mission-driven research could be: we have a quantum strategy. Canada has a quantum strategy. Uh, we need to be competitive in quantum computers. We decided that, and I'm just saying this. I'm not. This is not the actual quantum strategy, right? But I'm. We could decide. Oh, we want to be more on the programming side and the hardware side. So we need a lot of people looking into quantum cryptography. Okay. Well, you government could identify that as a mission, or some type of group could de determine that that's a priority. 
And then you say, well, you have X million dollars, that's a mission. And, but then it doesn't mean that an ADM or a deputy minister or a minister would decide, oh, we're giving the money to University X. It mm-hmm. could be experts, international experts, it could be national experts, it doesn't matter. But then you would have you know, the, uh, the money giving to the best team to answer the mission. And that's actually similar to a DARPA model, right? Where you yeah. do have experts determining who get the money, but the need is expressed either by government or, uh, you know, other groups in civil society. So it's the report is not intended as just trying to make everybody happy with bits of the of the report. You know, saying, "Oh well, universities want investigator-driven research. Government wants to decide who gets the money." How you expressed it. But actually, is Canada needs both type of research, and so how do we make sure that we have the right instruments to support both types of research? And it's the general direction that our, you know, I was about to say competitors, uh, peer countries, you know, have are adopting this kind of hybrid model where they need you need to make sure that you have really strong investigator-driven research, be it basic or applied. And you, you'll because research and innovation play an increasing role in every aspect of society. You need the type of mission-driven research instruments uh, to to make sure that you know if if you have a need for you know you, let's say I'm just taking an example uh, you know uh, I'll, you know just a random example let's say you invest in uh, battery factories. Uh, <laughs> Completely oh, random. Hypothetically. No, no, but I'm just taking one. Uh, well, it may be of deep strategic interest to also invest in battery research mm-hmm. because that's actually how you're going to anchor well, not just the IP, but the industries over decades, right? Yeah. Because the talent pool will be where the research is. And so this is how you link the mission-driven research, right, in a way that makes you competitive on the international stage and other countries are doing it. What we saw is that Canada was not there yet, and that's where why we made the recommendations that we made. Yeah, in a sense, and this is we're really into the rarefied heights here of, of science and research policy. But shortly after your report was made public uh, in March of this year, uh, there was the announcement of some of the biggest ever, I think, the biggest ever project funding uh, announcements in the history of Canadian science through the Canada First Research Excellence Fund, CIFREF. Uh, so we'll look at that acronym out of the way. So I'm, and that very much was sort of this idea of competitive selection on sort of national priorities. Uh, and they included, um, Etienne, there was one about uh, sort of automated labs that was, I think, probably the biggest ever, and there were so- several others. But I'm curious kind of what you make of, of that model, of that sort of fits into that box, or if you think that, well, and I suppose this is perhaps scooping the, the recommendations of the report, but why are those mechanisms... Uh, which are sort of standalone mechanisms through the existing councils, uh, insufficient compared to creating sort of a new layer of governance. Well, the uh, well, first of all, just to be clear, there are recommendations, and so I'm the one speaking with you today. But I just want to give a shout out to uh, Yolande Chan, Gilles Patry, Janet Rossant, Laurel Schaefer, Baljit Singh, and Vian Timmons, and also because you know I hope they'll be listening, but we were helped at the Secretariat by Kristen Haddad and Ryan Hempel. 
I'm I'm saying this so I'm using them as a human shield before I have <laughs> a question. But um, no, but more seriously, uh, Kristen Haddad and Ryan Hample, who work at ISED generally, but were our secretariat. Whenever we needed some kind of analysis of programs or understanding, you know, they were of great help in the in the, the redaction of the report. And I want to thank the other panel members. Uh, the basically. I wouldn't characterize the CFREF as a mission-driven program, uh, just because there wasn't a specific mission that was, you know, announced to get these these calls. Uh, and this is so. When thinking about mission-driven research, think in terms of questions that need an answer. So it could be, what is the effect of soil erosion on coastal community economies? Right, and that could be a mission. And it could be small calls, it could be big calls, right? The CFREF is for was intended originally because it's a program that has kind of evolved through the years. Uh, but it's for large-scale scientific collaboration where you know we think that when I say we, I mean Canada thinks that it's it's in Canada's interest to have a strategic positioning on the global stage. So if you will, you know, critical mass of researchers in specific fields important to Canada, but it wasn't. A, I wouldn't characterize as a mission-driven, because there wasn't a specific need or goal that was. It was more macro. Is how mm-hmm. can can uh, Canada be competitive? Um, you know, I, I'm kind of torn to expressing uh, expressing my personal opinion about CFREF types programs. Uh, what I'm worried about more generally is, I, I think. Canada should be much more ambitious about the place research has in its national identity and national kind of priorities, activities, if you will. And that will mean supporting small, medium, big projects. And when I look at, you know, and this is not partisan, this is through the decades, is we do one big thing at a time. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, oh, let's do CFREF, and then it takes all of the bandwidth. Oh, no, 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 let's do CRCs, right? Uh, Canada Research Shares, that was in the 90s. That was a very important program uh, in the development of of, uh, Canadian research. But it's kind of, we do one big thing at a time, and we should, I think, increase our bandwidth. Like other countries are making research and science national priorities, not out of ego, but because their standing depends on it for mm-hmm. you know economic reasons, health reasons, social reasons, uh, security reasons, national security reasons, and that means kind of making sure you have kind of a portfolio of of instruments because you have different types of research that need to be supported. Uh, I I'm kind of the panel, this is why we look at an ecosystem approach is what do the different actors in government, how do they support different types of research? And I think we have to go beyond a program-based approach, which has been the tendency for the last 10 years, is making targeted programs for specific aims. Uh, CFREF is one, and it does great things on certain aspects, but certain things it doesn't do at all. And this will be true of any given program. And this is why we think in terms of ecosystem uh, and what do the current funding agencies support? Do they have the right means to support it? Our answer is no. Uh, Are they sufficient to the task? 
the answer is no. And, and, and not just in terms of means, but in terms of mandate. And this is why uh, we come up with, um, you know, uh, where, where we come up saying you need to increase the funding of the existing tri-council, the funding agencies and CFI, uh, because Canada is lagging its peers and it's, this will have material consequences for Canada's, you know, any Canada growth strategy or security strategy and so on. And so we need to take care of that. But also we need to answer uh, the need for a mission-driven research instrument uh, that uh, we propose. We call it the CKSF. Uh, we know it sounds like a bad AM radio uh, station. Uh, the name, the name doesn't matter. Uh, but basically, it's uh, you know, it's the Canadian Knowledge and Science Foundation. Uh, to be to be blunt, we call it that just because the the most renowned uh, actor in the world is the National Science Foundation, the U.S. So we just wanted to piggyback on that brand. Uh, but the name doesn't matter. Right, but it, the idea is that you need some sort of funding instrument that supports interdisciplinary research that is not well supported right now. We can come back to that uh, mission-driven research, which I've, which I've spoken a lot uh, about, and international collaborations uh, that we should f- find a minute to speak of because that was kind of a bit shocking when we talked to uh, international uh, uh, countries, other countries that collaborate with us. <laughs> So let's maybe take a minute here and dig into the, let me get the acronym right, CKSF. Yeah. Um, Because it's kind of like, I I don't know if you'd agree with this characterization, the flagship recommendation of the report. And there's substantial, uh, a substantial number of pages kind of delving into the rationale around it. An org chart is proposed. Um, Obviously, a lot of time and consideration was paid to this recommendation in particular. I guess... My first question is, what is wrong or what did, what did you see as the issues with the CRCC um, for folks at home, the Canada Research Coordinating Committee, uh, which is a committee of tri-council, tri-agency presidents and heads, along with select deputy ministers, um, who am I missing, uh, chief science officer, uh, chief science advisor, rather, um, a few others I'm, I'm probably forgetting. So the uh, to take a step back, we spoke about the agencies, but we haven't talked about their mandates, the existing agencies. So SHRC, and I won't g- give the full... Uh, the social Sciences and Humanities yeah. Council. SHRC, SHRC basically supports social science and humanities research. And SHRC supports natural science uh, engineering uh, research. And CIHR supports health-related research. And CFI basically supports, uh, you know, uh, the purchase of instruments. That's highly reductive, but just to give you an idea, CFI gives the tools to do the research. Uh, and uh, basically, they all have relatively specified mandates by law, but also by, by need of the research community. Um, and through the years, you know, research has become not all of it, but there has been more and more interdisciplinary research. So if you want to look at adaptation to climate change, well, is it a biology question, a geography question, or is it an economics, a sociological, and anthropological question? Well, the answer is it's a bit of all of that. But it's actually very difficult 
not just in terms of dollars, but just in terms of evaluating and supporting interdisciplinary research. Yeah. Can I jump in on the evaluation yeah. point just to give people some some color of how these decisions get made? Uh, we've talked a little bit about that they're they're made by by academics, and that's essentially right. What happens is that uh, the funding councils receive uh, applications for for research grants. Uh, they have various programs. The research councils then put together committees uh, made up of academics who are experts on a certain subject matter. Those committees gather and review applications that have been assigned to them and make funding decisions, and then those can be appealed, etc. Uh, so for, for those of you wondering why the interdisciplinarity is a problem here, it's because those committees are housed within funding councils that have expertise in convening committees related to subject matter that are sort of within those big umbrellas. So the minute you have to start going outside of those umbrellas, you create a sort of exponential complexity of them having to coordinate with each other. Yeah, so that's that's part of it, but it's also in terms of the relative importance of in budgets of interdisciplinary research versus disciplinary research. It's it's easy to kick the can to say another agency should take on the interdisciplinary. Right. We're going to focus on our priorities. <laughs> and interdisciplinary right. always gets kind of knocked down a few pegs in terms of funding. And to be clear, even I mean, the I know a lot of people in the funding agencies. I mean, these are cooperative, goodwill people, but their mandates. Like, so their legal mandates is to support disciplinary research. So basically, when you're asking them to do interdisciplinary research by by design of these agencies, it's I don't want to say it's fully outside of their mandate, but it's not their core business, if you will. So this is not they all want to work together in some sense, but they're in organizations that are not designed to work together. So the CRCC that you referenced earlier, basically was kind of a, I want to say an ad hoc solution. So, well, let's try to get, you know, uh, the heads of these agencies together so okay, they can develop, you know, programs or uh, means to better work together. And they did, they did, you know, provide advances, but it doesn't go beyond, it cannot go beyond the fact that, you know, they're, they're working around organizations that were designed, that were not designed to support interdisciplinary research. And this is not this is not just kind of a oh well let's just you know uh, why don't they understand no everybody understands that they need to we we need this but you know there's so many needs in disciplinary research that aren't addressed right now that in some sense you're asking them to take away you know the meager resources that are targeted you know by law. <laughs> to go to, uh, you know, mostly disciplinary research, to go outside of their agencies. So they wouldn't actually be answering their fiduciary duties, you know, by diverting those funds. And so this why CRCC, which was kind of a goodwill committee uh, in, in many respects, um, it would have been astonishing to see it succeed because you're dealing with organizations that weren't designed to provide those results. And so CRCC was an attempt, uh, I want to say a, a low-key governance attempt to get to more interdisciplinary research or get to more mission-driven research. And the assessment of our panel, and frankly, the testimony of, of the stakeholders, was that it did not work. But not because they didn't, not because of the individuals involved, but just because organizationally, it, 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 it couldn't. Let me pick on that just one second longer. 
Um, CRCC was created uh, in response to the Naylor report. It was not a perfect uh, recreation of the recommendation that was in the Naylor. They, the government took some creative liberties in terms of implementing it. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, I'm, the name of the fund I'm drawing a blank on right now, New Horizons and Research Fund, is that right? Well, there's a strategic science fund. There's the... the there's a what I'm getting at the is there's frontiers, a pot, the new, new frontiers, frontiers and research fund, which is kind of intended as a dedicated pot and focuses on interdisciplinary research. Is yeah. that is so? If I were to push back, I'd say like, well, CRC, CRCC was given a specific pot of money with which to pursue interdisciplinary research. Why was that not enough, or why didn't that work? Yeah, it's not just so the you 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 mentioned earlier that. You know, when we talk about the funding requests, we kind of explain why it's part of our report when the report was geared towards structure and governance. I think it would be a mistake to just to just look at the effect of money or to just look at the effect of structures and governance. Obviously, they work together. You know, if you if you have to decide whether you're going to buy an electric car or a gas car, you know, it makes a big difference whether they're charging stations in your neighborhood, right? Or whether there are gas stations in your neighborhood. We saw the relationship between funding and structure in the same way. So just saying, oh, there's a pot of money for interdisciplinary research. Well, it gets back to Laurent's comment earlier that, yeah, but it's actually much more difficult than that to get the right committees, the right to assess what is the best science project that should get the money. And so this is why we link up you know, uh, the structure with resources or the resources with structure. If you really want interdis- cutting edge interdisciplinary research, which is what we need, you need an agency that that's its core business, right? So it, it looks at, well, what does interdisciplinary mean right now on the world stage? Uh, are we really getting the right uh, uh, experts at the table to assess those demands and so on. So it's not just about the money. Uh, the new frontier, I think, was a positive step in the right direction, but I don't think it, in the long term is how we Canada gets competitive. It needs a structure to support where where the uh, the core business is interdisciplinary research because that you're going to get the right indicators, you're going to get the right expertise to assess the projects, not just the experts externally, but also the program. Um, um, employees in the agencies and so on. And you also need, also, uh, this is an important point for our report, is you need its own oversight with the right makeup of expertise to do it. Uh, you know, on the SHRC board or on the NSERC board or on the CIHR, like all the funding agencies' uh, governing boards, you know, you have people from the respective research communities and other stakeholders on on those uh, those committees. The CRCC did not have its independent oversight. It did not have a board. The New Frontier doesn't have kind of its own oversight. Uh, and if we were to design such board, well, you would want people from various fields, but you would also want some indigenous leaders and some business uh, leaders. Uh, and so you need the right oversight to the right structure if you want the resources to do the work uh, that that you wanted to. I mean, this is trivial. This is how, you know, all of government should work. But our assessment was that it was lacking right now. 
Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the the problems of, of sort of structure and governance, because to my mind, they are kind of the the eternal problems of Canadian governance in, in science and the economy and sort of their their nexus uh, is that we we run through sort of mechanisms and methods and programs um, that sort of make them their limitations known pretty soon as, as things change. And then we seem unable to kind of pivot to uh, to new kind of forms that can better sort of govern the problems. Or, or you know, we, um, our expectations are too high that one tweak will solve everything. Mm-hmm. And so we, we were looking for ambitious but pragmatic recommendations. The funding, the current funding agencies do a really good job supporting investigator-driven research. They don't have enough means to do it, but they do a really good job in how they do it, in supporting, you know, finding the right researchers to do the work. Uh, there's something that's lacking. Well, make sure you have the right instrument to support that. But you also have to take into account, you know, there, there's this, we're in this weird place uh, in, you know, for Canada where other countries have really woken up to the importance of research and innovation in a way that Canada has not. I mean, mm-hmm. just materially. And yeah. again, this is not just a question of dollars. It's a question of ambition. Um, you know, basically, uh, and this gets into, uh, you know, other acronyms about, you know, the percentage of GDP that goes <laughs> into Laurent, Laurent, earlier. <laughs> Laurent teased those at the beginning. <laughs> uh, but, but basically, you know, Canada is losing ground. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, 20 years ago, it was roughly uh, at OECD average. So, you know, rich countries average. Now it is below. It has been declining, mm-hmm. right? Most of the decline actually uh, because businesses don't invest enough in R&D. But, I mean, government has to do something, right, mm-hmm. to respond to that. Most rich countries have increased their percentage of their GDP that goes towards research and development activities. And the most striking example is South Korea. Uh, South Korea, 20 years ago, was below... OECD. Now it's number one or number two in the world. Yeah. What does that mean? You know, it, it's, oh, yeah, well, it's great to have, you know, uh, to be good in rankings and so on. No, actually, well, yeah, but the real consequence is that a few days ago in Bécancourt, Quebec, when uh, Ministre Champagne and, and some uh, the Quebec Premier, François Legault, and other ministers opened a big Ford plant for batteries, we were using South Korea. I mean, we're using a South Korean technology. Like South Korea has invested so much in research and development that now it's generating IP, intellectual property, that has economic value, great economic value. And now, basically, I don't know the full deal, the full details of the deal. And it's a good deal for for Quebec and Canada, but basically, it means that you know South Korea. Technology, which means we have to license some patents or, or so on, you know, we're manufacturing things that were designed elsewhere, and this will have huge economic impact for the next decades. South Korea, you know, we're 38 million. Canada is 38 million people, roughly. Uh, South Korea is below 60 million, so we're we're in the same bracket, same league. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've invested so much in research and development that right now they have 500,000 more researchers. So 500,000 more researchers than Canada. 
has. This so I will guess, translate, this will ahead, translate sorry, yeah. patents and, and vaccines and so on. And Canada is missing out. There's an urgency on acting on this file because it's not just South Korea. It's the U.S. with the U.S. chips and uh, mm -hmm. IRA. It's uh, the U.K. has invested massively. Germany has woken up and has was already very good and is investing more. And not just more money, but its ambitions toward the place of, of research and innovation uh, for uh, their country's growth. And our recommendations, you know, are part, you know, we, we provide, I'd say, attempts at answering that, that international competition. You've touched on a lot of interesting points there, and I'll kind of try and, and take just one at a time. And I, I, the South Korea point is, is very pertinent because I think, you know, you look back let's not even say 100 years ago, let's look at after the Korean War. You know, it's a country that had been pretty well comprehensively destroyed and is now, um, I think, set to pass the UK in, in GDP per capita, which is an incredible achievement. Um, and as you say, you know, their performance in research and development has been very, very strong. Where I think Canada has historically had problems is not so much in the, the, the funding of research, which we, you know, since I would say the 60s and 70s, do pretty well at the sort of academic research level. And you're right to say that BIRD has been the weakness there. And taking, you know, you, you mentioned the sort of linkage between researchers and then patents and innovation on the other side. That's actually historically, if you talk to a lot of people in Canada, the, the piece where we have really done quite poorly is turning research into innovations that turn into intellectual property that we then turn into products that we then export. You know, you mentioned a South, you know, a, a South Korean company coming uh, here to set up shop in, in Quebec, and various ministers coming to uh, to uh, attend the opening. I was I was really thinking the other day, how often do you hear about Canadian companies getting the the, the ribbon cutting treatment abroad, yeah. right? And it's not often, uh, and I've really been giving that a lot of thought. But so I, I guess my my question is is how would the CKSF and you mentioned the, the CIC and the sort of linkages to the CIC in the report. And, and I wonder how you respond to the kind of notion that that research as such, uh, and even leaving aside, you know, the distinction between investigator driven research, or admission driven, rather, how do those sort of innovations and new learnings turn into commercial success for, you know, Canadian exporters, who ultimately are the people who are going to be paying for the next generation of researchers by, you know, exporting the products that we sell abroad that turn into Canadian taxes that turn into et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So uh, the first part is that you, you mentioned that Canada, so the, and you, you mentioned this, but actually it's kind of the, the general assessment, you know, public assessment, you know, uh, outside of universities always, oh, Canada is doing pretty good on research, but what we're lagging is innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say it's 50% right. We are lagging innovation. We're not that good in research. And then this is this is something that's uh, uncomfortable to to kind of recognize, especially as a university administrator. But <laughs> it, it, uh, you know, basically, we're we're pretty good in research, insofar as we recruit really well, mm -hmm. and because you know uh, you know people like to collaborate with us, and yeah. so it, it's kind of we have. I, I want to say I don't want to say undeserved, but our scientific impact. Uh, is not as high as it should be by any means. And basically, it's, it's a bit more about past investments and about, uh, you know, uh, interpersonal, uh, you know, relationships between collaborators 
uh, that we still are in this league. To and I'll get back to the innovation in a minute, but I asked. So we I interviewed. Uh, we the panel received uh, comments, verbal comments by you know the director of the National Science Foundation, uh, somebody in the the leadership at UKRI, which is the big uh, UK agency. Uh, the head of a big French agency, a representative from the German government, uh, uh, higher up in Norway. And I asked them, I'm putting this more bluntly, not, yeah, well, pretty much how I asked them, is Canada a priority research partner? And they all answered something to the effect, oh, we really like to work with Canadian scientists. I said, no, that's not what I asked. Is Canada <laughs> a priority research partner? And then they would say, well, no, Canada is a privileged research partner. Say, is Canada a priority research partner? And they all said pretty much no. Mm -hmm. We're not in that league. Not because their scientists are not good enough. We are. But because they're, they don't know where we want to go. And they don't know whether there'll be the follow through to collaborate in big scientific collaborations that will make a difference. And obviously, there are exceptions. But I'm just talking macro here. Mm -hmm. How does it relate to innovation? When you look at Germany, for instance, you know, if you're an academic, if you're a university administrator, you'll be talking about Max Planck Institutes, which are the basic research institutes. And if you're on the business side, you're going to say Germany is great because they've got the Fraunhofer, which are the big I hear that uh, a lot. <laughs> basically centers that help for industry R&D. Uh, mm -hmm. But what people, you know, you need to get kind of a bigger ecosystem vantage point. I'd say Germany is good because it has the Max Planck and the Fraunhofer. Right, because it's so ambitious on R and D that it's really excited to have, you know, basic research that's highly theoretical and the applications are not, you know, clear. And, you know, it's really excited to have big industry university partnerships. They have both, and other countries are in various ways are finding the means. And DARPA, in some sense. DARPA was not, in, or CARPA, was not intended to replace university basic research, right? It's saying you still need a lot of investigator-driven research, but you also need mission-driven research. For innovation in the recommendations that we make, basically is looking at what various funding agencies, what type of expertise, what type of mandate can they, what type of research can they support? And a good way of looking at it in terms of patents is uh, a lot of uh, innovation policies um, are geared towards technology readiness levels, TRLs. Basically, if you have a low TRL, it's basic research. If it's high TRL, it's safe and you can deploy it you know, in the wild, in the world, mm -hmm. which means you can commercialize it. And what we look into is our recommendations is you look at the funding agencies, most investigator-driven research, basic research, if you will, but again, it's too reductive because a lot of it is applied research, is low TRL, right? It's, you're not even close to commercialization, and that's fine. They don't have their expertise or the time to do that part. So the, the current funding agencies would be geared mostly towards low TRL. As soon as you, the, the technology, I speak of technology, but it's not just technology, but as soon as it's maturing, it's going to get interdisciplinary because you need to see, well, you're going to need to talk to users. You're going to need to talk to safety experts and so on. So the mid-TRL is interdisciplinary. So that's the CKSF 
that supports that kind of research. And when you get to high TRL, you get closer to commercialization, then we don't have the right expertise and it shouldn't be a single agency that does everything because you need business intelligence, you need uh, market development and so on. And that gets to the CIC mandate. So it's more a question of to have a good research to innovation chain, instead of trying to get a single body that does everything poorly, you need more specialized actors, specialized instruments that support various stages of research towards innovation. The tri-agency, the tri-council, the existing agencies would support you know, lower TRL research. The CKSF would take on the baton you know, when it's uh, more mature research. And then when you get closer to commercialization, then you pass it on to a business-facing uh, a business-facing agency, which would be the CIC. And so this is how I, I think we've, Canada has to be more ambitious about research innovation. And that means getting really excited about top-notch research and expecting top-notch innovation, but, you know, not expecting everyone to do both. Mm-hmm. And this is how Germany does it. Uh, Japan is going in that direction. The U.S. has been doing it in a very different model, but for decades. Uh, but and Canada needs to get into the game. Otherwise, we'll just be, you know, buying patents and vaccines that are designed elsewhere, and we won't have the money for to pay for it because we won't have, you know, the high growth strategies that we need to support our economy. Can I, can I so, just say, just on on the mention of Japan, one of the funnest facts I ever learned when I was investigating this space is the Japanese uh, missions in their mission-driven oh, research. Oh, they're so cool. Some they're of so them cool. are extremely fun, <laughs> including being like brains in jars by 2040, like being able yeah. to, to live and connect your brain to the internet, like all kinds of just wild things. I think we need that spirit. And I, this is, uh, you know, something I've discovered through through our work is that you know, there is a tall poppy syndrome. Like there, there's a, there is an issue of, do we want to be about, you know, do we want to be among the best uh, in the world? And why? Why is that necessary? And then, you know, and this gets back to your comment about finance. As a country, we should be really ambitious about wild projects. Not just those. But we shouldn't have have to apologize. If somebody came up with that kind of mission and could explain why this is strategic for Canada, we should all say, listen, even if it doesn't work, you know, we're going to get a lot of IP and a lot of knowledge through Mm -hmm. that. We're going to have a highly qualified personnel, you know, that we wouldn't get elsewhere. That's the DARPA model. Uh, The DARPA model in the US, even though it's mostly for defense, they have a bunch of really wild missions. And even when they fail, or when, you know, not when they, they haven't failed, but even when teams haven't, you know, managed to succeed, you've got new businesses, you've got uh, new science that comes out of it that, uh, that, is, that is very important. And to give an example, you know, in my, in my university, we have, uh, well, you know, the, the artificial intelligence uh, revolution, you know, we, we played a big, we were playing a big part in it. But I'll talk about another field. 
I have a, a team looking at uh, exoplanets, so planets, trying to identify planets uh, in other um, solar systems, okay? What is the measure of their success? Like, let's say they, I mean, they find these planets, but let's say they didn't. Like, even when they fail, like, even if they supposedly fail at, at the, you know, let's say we give them money to, to find uh, other planets, even if they don't find it, you have top-notch scientists that will go in the satellite industry, that will go in the, I mean, this has, is of huge importance for the Canadian economy and society because the expertise you're developing has a lot of value outside of the university. Mm -hmm. And so what the notion of success and failure needs to be kind of redesigned. The brain in jar example in Japan, I can guarantee you that out of that research, I hope they don't succeed. <laughs> Just uh, as a philosopher, it's kind of a scary. But, I'm hoping they do. So. <laughs> but, but they're going to get, it's, you know, it's almost certain that they're getting uh, implant technology, uh, biomedical device uh, uh, technology that will improve, you know, uh, Japanese well-being. It's guaranteed, mm -hmm. even if they don't succeed to that crazy mission. And I think Canadians need to be much more ambitious. Uh, we, need, we all need to be more ambitious and risk-taking, uh, both on the research end and on the innovation end. And other, other countries are not waiting for us to wake up to that. Mm -hmm. I'm very conscious of our time. I do want to raise one kind of point out of that, which is sort of the, the fact of the U.S., Right. And I think this is you mentioned the AI piece. Uh, if you look at the federal AI strategy, which is funded basically relocation of HQP, highly qualified personnel. I'm doing it, too. Now, sorry, uh, to Canada, which is great. We've gotten a lot of really good experts out of it. It sort of what you've mentioned about this, this idea that, you know, the spillovers will happen and then will be kind of absorbed into into the fabric of, of society. It, I guess the the problem is empirically that doesn't seem to happen in this country. Um, like if you look at the AI strategy I mentioned, there have been 250 odd patents filed kind of, or IPRs, I should say, intellectual property rights out of the AI strategy. I think 75% of the patents are currently owned by us companies and the single biggest benefactor is Uber. Uh, and I guess to me, like if you're doing these, these big mission driven things, you want to have mechanisms to ensure that the, the positive spillovers, if you will, yeah. are absorbed sort of at home and, and aren't just exported because then we've just paid for, you know, wonderful research and patents that Uber or other American companies will, will commercialize and sell back to us. I guess that's to me, the, the sort of cost. And I, I take your point that, you know, I think ambition is good and ambition is great and innovation spillovers are, are both of those things. Um, but our capacity to act as a sponge for our own ideas as a society, seems to be historically quite bad. And I, I'm, wondering what you think of that problem and, and how we could address it. So the, um, so a lot, a lot of people have looked into, you know, the lagging performance of Canada vis-a-vis -vis innovation. And so the general consensus, and it may be misguided, but it sounds actually, it sounds uh, pretty reasonable is that, uh, you know, because of our small market, because of uh, the low Canadian dollar, uh, because of the high uh, proportion of the economy that's resource-based, you know, there's not a big incentive for companies to do, uh, 
you know, big, big, when I say investments, I don't mean just dollars, but kind of intentionality, like mm-hmm. Canadian businesses to go. Uh, I think a lot of people are waking up that, you know, the fact that we're lagging in productivity will have huge economic impact. So it's not just, we can't sell enough water and trees and oil to, you know, to, to compensate for the low productivity uh, loop that we're into. Mm-hmm. A lot of that, those productivity gains are innovation-based and not just patents, but organizational innovations and so on. And so my feeling is that a lot of Canadian businesses are, are waking up to the fact that, you know, the good deal that they had that a low dollar, you know, it, it was good enough to export cheaply. Uh, but in, a, in an economy where you have a huge aspect that's digital, you do need those productivity gains uh, and to make, because you're, you're not competing, you know, that you're competing on the world stage every day, whether yeah. you want it or not. So yeah, that's exactly. on the business end. I think, I think the businesses are, are waking up to that. I th- I'm not sure... And I'll be careful here because here I don't have as much expertise. Uh, I know there's a shred that that's another acronym, uh, <laughs> but basically they're innovation tax credits yeah. for companies. I'm, this is highly simplistic. Uh, there's there's a review of that. I think those the questions will be asked. Uh, frankly, we and this is also on the university end, but we need to be much much more better at wanting to hire masters and PhDs in all sectors of society. And basically, and this is both cultural and economic, but most PhDs are trained and with, I mean, their own intention is to become a university professor. And we say, oh, well, universities should do a better job at telling them that they should do something else. (laughs) No, 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 but this is, this is kind of a, something that we're being told on a regular basis. And, but honestly, is you know, most businesses don't look for masters and PhDs. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're happy to get really smart employees, but they don't look for that degree of expertise to improve their. I mean, they don't demand it. You know what? what yeah. be it. And we need to find the tools to basically give incentives and give the goal of increasing the quality of our highly qualified personnel in private businesses and in government. And I'm telling you, our masters and PhD students will help you do the productivity gains in your organizations because they know internationally what, what is the state of the of field. You know, they, they, uh, they're trained to identify charlatans, which is pretty good in business, right? And so it's, When I speak of ambition, it's not just saying, you know, I, I can have uh, the ambition of losing 10 pounds in the last in the next two months. If I don't go training, you know, that ambition is worthless. Uh, so we need both the ambition, but also kind of uh, the clarion call that Canada, if Canada doesn't get kind of a mature growth strategy, doesn't get, you know, its attention on uh, innovation and on productivity gains, we won't be able to afford our services. We mm-hmm. won't be able to license the patents that we need to get the industries to get the right jobs, right? And so this is a this is a macroeconomic story uh, and a social story, uh, but there's not a single challenge for the next decades uh, that where research innovation won't be a part of it. 
And right now, the U.S., because of the U.S. CHIPS Act, which is on the semiconductor side, uh, but also the IRA, which is green technologies. But you'll see the same thing on the health side. Uh, Their industrial and national security strategies are tied to a science strategy. And basically, somebody asked me whether the VW deal or the Salantis deal was too much money or, you know, or was it a good deal? And first of all, well, I don't know. But my, my instinct was saying, well, it's too much money or too little money, right? If you don't tie it to a talent strategy, which will be tied to university research one way or another, it, it cannot succeed in the long term just because the, the industries that you're attracting are not anchored to Canada if you don't have the right highly qualified personnel. And that highly qualified personnel right now, you know, the, the ones that you need to anchor those businesses are currently finishing their master's and PhD thesis. And if we don't do something, they'll, they will go to the US. The risk of brain drain is not hypothetical. Uh, I've just lost a professor I had uh, managed to get one of the biggest endowed chair, you know, uh, that I could find. He went to Germany. He was working on batteries. He left with three PhD students. The PhD students are not German. They left because, you know, they were taken, better taken care of in Germany. And so this will have financial impacts. I can guarantee you that that professor will be patenting stuff in Germany and that V VW maybe for VW <laughs> and that we will be licensing it to have a small branch plant uh, here, and so this has there's an urgency to answering uh, this this competition call from other countries. So that uh, that note on urgency, I think, is a perfect transition to the proposed timeline section of the report. <laughs> yeah, which um, as someone familiar with laying out proposed timelines to government and often being disappointed by government's adherence to my proposed timelines. Um, the report envisions a lot of action in 2023, of which uh, I've been out of the sector for a while now, in fact, for all of 2023. Have I missed any developments um, along, the, along the lines that the government has suggested, or uh, sorry, that the report suggests that the government take? Or has it been kind of quiet, all quiet on the uh, science waterfront, if you will. So basically, the when we presented the report, I should say, and this I'm not breaking confidence, especially since it's positive, so they'll be happy that I'm breaking <laughs> confidence. Uh, but uh, Ministre Champagne and Ministre Duclos were highly engaged in the report. And I mean this not just kind of courtesy, your work is important to us way, but asking detailed mechanics of the report, so they they obviously had uh, they obviously had a keen interest in the recommendations and what would be the consequences of it. Obviously, the last federal budget was a weird experience. Uh, having you know one's report being mentioned in the budget without any resources attached to it uh, <laughs> is a business. I mean, I, I is a bit disconcerting. I mean, because basically, it means your call is important to us. Um, you know, it rarely makes you feel confident, uh, but it, it was still a, a gesture. Frankly, the discussions I've had, both on uh, the public servant side and on the political side, I think 
they are taking this seriously and working on scenarios. I don't know the details of those scenarios. But honestly, the recommendations hit on key points. Uh, what I'm less con so I'm confident that I would say that the ball is in play. What I'm not confident, as confident with, is, and I've spoken to a, people, you know, uh, in various sectors of government, not just at ISAID and health, but uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that there's a, when I speak of urgency, I, I'm not trying to be melodramatic, is that our, our best and brightest are leaving. And this is tough to kind of catch up with. So it's when we pushed for a, a kind of a rapid timeline, it's not because we're impatient. It's because there needs to be urgent action. I don't know of any sector in Canadian society where, you know, uh, basically wages haven't gone up for 20 years. So graduate students will either leave uh, or they'll abandon their studies, and that impacts Canada. So we, we pushed on the Canadian scholarships because that, that's the most urgent part. We pushed for the funding agency budget increase because, and this we explained in the report, actually most graduate students are not funded via the CGS scholarship. They're funded via, via grants from their profs. Yeah. So if you only act on the scholarships, you're only helping 20% of your graduate students. If you really want to increase, if you're focused on talent, you have to act on the scholarships and on the grants, basically. So mm -hmm. that's the funding, the initial funding increase that wasn't initiated in the last federal budget. Uh, I really hope that in the in a fall statement or in the next budget that there's a move there, because if there isn't, you know, uh, the brain drain that we're already starting to witness will accelerate, and and this will have economic impacts and societal impacts for Canada. Uh, on the structure and governance, uh, we still th we think this is urgent. We understand that it takes more time just because you're dealing with uh, government. Um, uh, uh, machinery or, you know, the, the, the function of government. Uh, but there is kind of an urgent, I mean, money is nice and all, but just putting more money in the system will not answer the problems that we have vis-a-vis -vis international collaborations, interdisciplinary research, and mission-driven research. Canada really needs, needs those, especially the interdisciplinary and mission-driven research. If it wants to wait longer, you know, well, okay, but you do want research on specified missions, and you do want research that's more interdisciplinary because the challenges are more interdisciplinary than they've ever been. So this is why the timeline is urgent. My feeling is that, like I said, the, the ball is in play. Uh, so I'm not, um, you know, I, I won't give a probability uh, just because the feeling I get is that Canada does the Canadian government doesn't have the bandwidth. I'll tell you one thing that depressed me almost more than the budget uh, is that when there was the, sh the shuffling, the reshuffling of cabinet, how many times did you hear the word science or uh, research? None. They spoke about almost every other issue, right, that needed to be addressed, not that one. And I think we need to all kind of understand that research uh, is not a luxury activity of advanced societies. It's the necessary condition 
of advanced societies. And all of the other strategies and, and goals that you may have, you will not be able to achieve unless you have you know, a more educated citizenry, but you have cutting-edge research that can anchor talent uh, in Canada. And this is where we're, you know, we've been lagging more and more. But the real problem is that the U.S. So the biggest problem we have is the U.S. has yeah. woken up in a big way. The big magnet of, yeah. of talent it's a ideas, huge, it's a huge magnet. It already was. Mm. But basically, we better really hope that our students love winter and poutine because <laughs> that's our competitive. I mean, that's our competitive advantage right now. Yeah. So, Dr. Yeah. Boucher, I mean, Etienne, I, I'm just looking at our time here. Uh, do you have an, another question? No, I'll I'll pass. <laughs> I, gave, it- I, gave, I gave long answers just because I was afraid uh, of Etienne's question. <laughs> <laughs> I figured, you know, I, I would... Uh, I would play defense that way. No, seriously, though, these are important issues. And thank you very much for uh, bringing some light on this. But no, one don't. word, urgent action. Well, two words, <laughs> uh, urgent action, urgent action. So Dr. Bouchard, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a, a really fantastic conversation. Uh, and if you'll just stay on the line for, for one minute or a couple seconds, actually, after I hit stop here, uh, just so it'll it'll save. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. This is a, a really fantastic conversation. We really thank you for reaching out. And uh, I, I hear that the government is supposed to report back on this in the, the coming months. Uh, so perhaps we'll, we'll talk to you again uh, in, the, in the relatively near future. But uh, thank you so much for the great conversation and uh, for, for you and for all of our listeners. Uh, until next time.